Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I'm talking to Dr. Mia Fisher about her book, Terrorizing Gender, Transgender Visibility, and the Surveillance Practices of the U.S. Security State. It was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2019. Terrorizing Gender traces how media and state actors collude in the violent disciplining of trans women, exposing the traps of visibility by illustrating that dominant representations of trans people as deceptive, deviant, and threatening are integral to justifying, normalizing, and reinforcing the state-sanctioned violence that's enacted against them. Dr. Mia Fisher is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Colorado, Denver. Her research and teaching focuses on LGBTQ media representations and the ongoing struggles of LGBTQ communities to access civil rights. Her work has been published in several academic journals, including Feminist Media Studies, Communication, Culture and Critique, Sexualities, and Communication and Sport. She also co-leads the Denver Pen Pal Collaborative, or DPPC, it's a collaborative prison pen pal project. Mia Fisher, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Thank you so much for having me, Isabel. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. I'm very glad that you are uh, to have you here today. So much has happened since you accepted my invitation to yeah. come talk to <laughs> us, right? From appalling new cases of violence against trans women of color and men. The, to amazing protests, to historic legislation being passed, and yeah. even we even have a new uh, documentary on Netflix, right, about uh, yes. trans representation. I'd love to hear your take on it in a minute. Your book helped me understand and contextualize uh, all of this a bit more deeply, so I thank you for that, and I hope that this interview will do the same to uh, our listeners But before we talk about the book, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how did this book come about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you know, many academics, uh, we all go to school for a very long time. Um, And I started my doctoral program at the University of Minnesota in 2011. Um, And so I, you know, I'm originally from Germany. I had been to several other places in the U.S. um, before I ended up in Minneapolis in 2011 for the Ph.D. Um, But this is where I really started, um, you know, focusing my research and my work on looking at issues of media representation, particularly of marginalized communities. Um, So whether it was um, folks of color, whether it was LGBTQ communities, Um, And as I got to Minneapolis, um, you know, when we talk about sort of 2012, 2014, what I noticed was that all of a sudden, there really seemed to be a very tremendous increase of discussion and visibility of transgender people in mainstream media. Um, 
And so I really just kind of started becoming more and more interested in what those representations of trans people looked like. Um, And I also noticed simultaneously, though, that that representation in the media didn't necessarily also mean improved living conditions and everyday lives for those trans communities. Um, And so a very local event that just happened a few months before I got to Minneapolis was um, the attack on C.C. McDonald, which is one of the case studies in the book, which I'm happy to talk about later a bit more in detail. But there was a lot of activism around C.C. McDonald, who was a black trans woman who was viciously um, the subject of a transphobic and racist attack. And so um, what was happening sort of locally on the ground very much also informed my interest in really looking at media representations of trans people and how that also um, reflected their everyday lives and experiences. So uh, let's begin our talk about the book uh, mm-hmm. by talking about the title. Yes. Can you explain what you mean by terrorizing gender? Yes. Um, I have to give a good um, colleague and partner of mine a shout out for coming up with this title. <laughs> so um, terrorizing gender was really or is the idea that... Um, what I'm trying to articulate in the book is that for trans, gender nonconforming, and non-binary communities, um, it is often not possible for them to just freely express their gender identity um, and the way that they self-identify and want to self-determine their gender expressions. And so terrorizing gender really um, refers to the fact that um, various state actors, but also media organization, will literally and physically Um, terrorize someone whose gender identity does not conform to sort of dominant norms and expectations. Um, And so this is where the terrorizing aspect comes in. Um, And as I illustrate in the book, this terrorizing can take really many forms um, with my case studies, whether it is just a news article that might use deliberately the wrong pronouns to refer to someone Um, whether it is, you know, the state throwing you in a jail based on your birth assigned sex. Um, And so the terrorizing aspect really refers to the fact that we're still in a place where not everyone really gets to live their gender identity freely and openly. I understand. Um, As you were mentioning a a minute ago, the year 2014 is perceived as as some sort of a turning point Mm -hmm. or as that iconic uh, Time magazine cover described it, the tipping point for transgender visibility. Uh, Could you set here the stage and remind uh, folks what was going on at that time? Yes, absolutely. It it seems such, you know, five, six years ago and it seems so long ago, but Um, I think what we were sort of experiencing in this moment about 2014 till about 2016, um, the sort of second term of the Obama administration, was really a very um, kind of optimistic um, sense that somehow trans people were really at the brink of becoming fully integrated and accepted into our national imaginary. Um, And so on the one hand, this was reflected in the increase in media visibility and presence of trans people. So let's take, for example, shows like Orange is the New Black, who start um, appearing around that time with Laverne Cox in a very prominent um, key protagonist role. Um, There was also the famous transition um, and coming out of Caitlyn Jenner, I think is another example of some of this trans visibility. And then you just mentioned the iconic Time magazine cover with Laverne Cox, 
um, the first trans woman of color to be headlining um, a Time magazine issue. Um, and this ominous transgender tipping point really seemed to insinuate um, that somehow really we now were fully accepting and integrating trans people, that they were increasingly gaining access to civil rights. Um, the Obama administration, for example, um, had repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the infamous um, military ban. Um, Obama had extended protections for trans people under the Affordable Care Act. So there was also the sense of legal progressivism that was including trans people um, for the very first time. So it is a very it was a very different sort of um, cultural moment than what we're obviously in right now um, with a lot of the backlash um, we could argue trans people are currently facing. Yes, you're right. This seems like like ages ago. I know. <laughs> I, oh. But as, as you were saying, you argue that this tipping point leads to a conservative backlash with increased surveillance mm -hmm. and regulation of trans people by the security state and media organizations. Uh, can you provide some examples of that backlash? Yes. So even when we're, you know, looking at 2014 or 2016, um, when we look at, for example, um, the numbers of whether it is, say, housing or employment, um, that trans people even then were still were dealing with disproportionate lack thereof. So high unemployment rates, um, lots of um, you know homeless folks who I or among the LGBTQ community, um, and especially also um, the number of murders of trans people, particularly trans women of color, was also increasing during the 2014 to 2016 time period. And then um, arguably, especially with the election of the Trump administration, um, we could really see a sort of full-on force conservative backlash that is now also really explicitly trying to roll back some of the legal protections that trans people had won under the Obama administration. So I think some of the most prominent examples of this backlash are probably um, the discussion around um, Trump's uh, ban on trans military service members. Um, as you might remember, um, this has been going through various sort of court proceedings and ultimately the Supreme Court ruled that um, it is legal for Trump to ban trans people from military service. Um, I assume a lot of you have probably also heard about the debates around bathroom bills and bathroom legislation so that trans people are not allowed to use public restrooms that actually are um, confirming or in alignment with their gender identity. Um, we have huge dis discussions right now about trans people in sports. Um, there is a, a bit of a panic, we could call it, um, that somehow trans women are threatening cis women in sports. So I think those are just some of the most prominent examples um, in the ways in which this backlash um, has, I think, increasingly also permeated our national debate and discussion. Mm -hmm. And uh, an important concept that you use here throughout the book is visibility politics. Mm -hmm. Could you explain and define it for us? Yes, absolutely. So visibility politics um, is really dates back, we could say, probably till about the 1950s and 1960s um, and has long been a strategy for marginalized groups um, to, I guess, you know, claim their place in larger national discourse. So um, for LGBTQ communities specifically, um, many national 
um, organizations such as the Human Rights Campaign or GLAAD for a long time have basically argued that we need to make LGBTQ folks more visible in the mainstream, in news media, in fictional media, um, because they argue visibility in the media can then also lead to improved living conditions, um, access to legal rights, et cetera, for those marginalized communities. Um, and so what I argue and many other media scholars argue is that this focus on visibility and media representation um, surely is important um, because we all know it is important to have diverse representation in the media, but that visibility alone does not necessarily really also lead to improved social um, conditions for various groups. Um, and what also often complicates visibility is that when we look, for example, let's say shows like Modern Family um, for LGBTQ representation, is that that visibility is often a very narrow and privileged one. So Modern Family, we had the kind of very ideal um, couple, um, husband team who really desired um, to be married, who wanted to have children, and who are also very middle to upper class and they're white. Um, so a lot of media scholars argue that visibility politics often sort of narrowly focuses um, on a certain kind of visibility that becomes acceptable and respectable, but that also often leaves out those LGBTQ folks um, that might not be able to conform to some of these narrow ideals. Um, and so as I argue in the book, is that especially for trans people, um, the sort of desire to become visible in the media often actually um, leads or becomes sort of a double-edged sword. Because as I point out in the book, this visibility can sometimes also actually result in more harm, more surveillance, um, and more repression by various state or media organizations. Now I wanted us to talk about uh, your case studies. The book, uh, Terrorizing Gender, focuses on three uh, case studies. And uh, as we, we talked before, uh, off the, the record through email, <laughs> in light of current events, I would yeah. love for us to focus more specifically on C.C. McDonald's mm -hmm. case and have this broader conversation about violence against Black trans people. Yeah. But before we do that, could you briefly uh, introduce the two other cases so that folks know what, what you're talk we're talking about? Yes. Yeah. So, um, Isabel, as you point out, the book is structured around um, three case studies. Um, I start the first case study um, is about Chelsea Manning, which is for probably or often, I think, sort of the most maybe prominent figure um, that folks recognize as being trans. Um, and so Chelsea Manning, for those of you who might not remember, is a former U.S. Army intelligence, intelligence analyst um, who worked in Iraq for the U.S. Army. Um, and in 2011, basically um, passed along a giant trove of classified and unclassified documents um, to the organization WikiLeaks. Uh, and those documents depicted sort of widespread wrongdoing by U.S. forces in Iraq. Um, so documenting anything of um, U.S. forces killing Iraqi civilians from kind of meddling in Iraqi elections. So it really didn't make a U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. military look very good. And so Manning passed these documents onto WikiLeaks, who published them. 
um, and of course generated a huge outcry um, and debate. And so Manning was arrested shortly after those documents um, were leaked and was then held in uh, military confinement. And so the story really has so many angles to it. But what seemed to really kind of explode everything on an even bigger level was when Manning announced um, that she identifies as trans and wanted to transition while she was um, awaiting her trial. And so what I noticed was that once she announced um, that she identifies as trans, that media coverage really took on um, a very demeaning, derogatory term in terms of basically arguing that because she is trans, she is mentally unstable, and that's why she leaked all those documents. Um, and not because maybe she had a larger conscience about, you know, wrongdoing of um, our military and of U.S. foreign policy. Um, so that is the Chelsea Manning story, which I really trace from 2011 till 2019. Um, there's so many complex angles to the story. But what really struck me was basically how media coverage really fed into this narrative um, that somehow um, her identity as trans made her a threat to national security, that she aided the enemy. Um, and it wasn't really a discussion about sort of the ethics of her decision. Um, and as I point out, too, there were really very questionable ways in which she was treated while she was confined. Um, there was an incredibly long period of pretrial detention, which some would argue is unconstitutional. She was put in solitary confinement um, for numerous months on end, which really also took a toll on her mental health. Um, and so it is really an analysis of looking how media coverage and the military's treatment of her kind of came together um, to create this narrative of uh, Manning being an enemy of the state. So that is just in a very sort of brief nutshell, um, the Manning case study. Yes. Um, it is, you know, a lot to condense. Yes. Um, maybe another last point I would add about Manning is too that um, in a second chapter on Manning, I specifically look sort of how LGBTQ organizations reacted and responded to her actions. And what was really interesting was that she was really very much shunned by mainstream LGBT organizations like the HRC. They really didn't want to sort of um, become involved in this case. Um, the reasoning, I think, was that at this same time period, 2016, a lot of these organizations are lobbying for the don't ask, don't tell repeal. And of course, Manning's story sort of didn't necessarily help that cause. Um, and so I also kind of really try to point out in the book again, um, how certain trans people are not also often um, really following the larger narratives that some of the mainstream LGBTQ organizations want to create um, in terms of, again, expanding rights for LGBTQ citizens. Yeah, that, that, those two chapters really helped me understand uh, Manning's case. As, as you mentioned, okay. it was the one I was more familiar with of the mm -hmm. three. But, uh, great. I'm, great. I'm, I'm glad I was um, able to do that. Um, yeah, and it's also, I don't know if, you know, um, some of you might have more recently heard that Manning, again, she was, um, President Obama commuted her sentence at the end of his term. Uh, so she was actually released in 2016. But then she was incarcerated again more recently because she has refused to testify in a grand jury case against Julian Assange. 
Um, and so her really her sort of ongoing targeting by the U.S. state, I think, is, is really um, it's it's horrifying. Um, and it's it's really it's a tremendous, um, a tremendous case in terms of really, again, looking at how the U.S. state treats certain subjects um, that are not necessarily conforming to dominant ideals and norms. Yeah. But before we talk about C.C. Uh, McDonald's case, can you introduce mm -hmm. the third case? Yeah, the third case study in the book is um, looking at um, Monica Jones, who is also a black trans woman from Phoenix, Arizona, um, and is also at the time she was a student at ASU um, working in a social um, studies program. Um, and Monica Jones, uh, what happened to her was really interesting and, and also, again, terrifying in many ways. Um, she was a or is a very outspoken sex work activist. And so when several years ago, 2014, um, in Arizona, she was basically walking down a street, um, waiting at a bus stop, um, an undercover cop pulled up um, and invited her to get into the car and said he would take her over to the bar. Um, and so she accepted. Um, and as he, again, he turns out to be an undercover cop. She basically got charged with a manifesting prostitution clause um, in Phoenix. Um, and so because Jones's connections to previous um, sex workers rights activism, um, the story really caught a lot of attention in Phoenix and in Arizona. Um, it was also picked up by some uh, trans civil rights organizations because Jones really exemplifies um, what folks call walking while trans. So just because you're a trans woman of color, you might be walking to a bus stop, you might be wearing a dress, um, oftentimes gets them picked up by law enforcement um, who then charge them with some dubious loitering charges, trespassing charges, etc. Um, so that is one part of the Monica Jones story. But what then even really got more sort of crazy was when a year later, um, she tried to go back to Sydney, Australia, where she was um, doing an internship for her social work studies um, on an Australian sex workers organization. Um, and so when she flew back to Sydney to complete that internship and complete her research, she was held up at the Sydney airport by immigration officials um, who claimed that she had violated her student visa. And um, as Jones is, you know, dealing with the immigration officials, all of a sudden a TV crew from the reality TV show Border Security shows up and is asking whether they could film this whole interaction. Um, and I don't know if you, some of you might be familiar with Border Security. It has various other um, country outlets. There was one in the U.S. that didn't survive very long. But it's basically a reality TV show that looks at how um, tourists, travelers engage with immigration officials at various border settings. Um, and of course, uh, most of the episodes deal with people who have, you know, done something wrong, who don't have the proper papers or who look, quote unquote, suspicious. Um, and so Jones gets into this whole interaction with immigration officials, with the TV crew, um, and it becomes very clear that the TV crew was already previously tipped off by these immigration officials um, who are really looking to sort of profit on a quote unquote juicy story about a trans woman of color who is, you know, has previous sex work charges. Um, and so I really use this chapter um, to really kind of bring together how both media organizations and state actors 
um, really come together um, to further criminalize trans people, um, especially also in, in moments of border crossing, um, that really creates a networked sort of security apparatus that extends well beyond domestic borders. Yeah, that, that story is, is really fascinating. Uh, and th- it has so many twists and, and, and interesting yeah. details. That, yeah. It really does. <laughs> yes. But for someone, anybody who's listening to this who might not be familiar with the case, can you tell us who is Cece McDonald and what happened to her? Yes. So Cece McDonald um, is a Black trans woman who um, was originally from Chicago, but also ended up in Minneapolis um, in the early 2010s. Um, and Cece McDonald basically walked down a street in her neighborhood. Um, on a, you know, on a late summer night with um, several of her friends. Um, and they passed a sort of working class white biker bar called the Schooner Tavern. And as they were passing this bar, um, a bunch of white patrons who were sort of hanging out in front of the bar, smoking, drinking, um, started harassing them, started, you know, calling them with various derogatory names, whether it was the F word, the N word, um, you name it. Um, And so they got into this altercation with these bar patrons. Um, There were glass tumblers being thrown. Um, People were, you know, pulling hairs and stuff, et cetera. Um, And at some point, um, one of the patrons, Dean Schmitz, was basically um, trying to follow Cece McDonald um, and, you know, trying to keep punching her. And so um, she had a pair of fabric scissors in her purse Um, And basically in this altercation, in the shuffle, um, Dean Schmitz got stabbed with these fabric scissors um, and he ultimately died. Um, And so the story really gained a lot of traction and attention because Cece McDonald was ultimately charged by the uh, Minneapolis prosecutor with a second degree murder charge. Um, And so she was arrested. She was sent to jail um, and she was being prosecuted for what activists and um, supporters of Sisi argued was really a matter of self-defense, of really trying to defend her life um, against this very enraged um, white patron. Um, And so that was just, you know, the the story. Um, And um, this is, as I mentioned, really just a few months sort of before I came to Minneapolis and really um, very much kind of influenced the whole trajectory of my work in the book um, in terms of me becoming really interested in how the local news media in Minneapolis was covering this case um, and also how the state really treated her um, in terms of, you know, thinking that why, you know, we're not going to grant her a right to self-defense. And so it was really revealing a lot of the intricacies of how generally black people are treated in the criminal justice system but then also specifically how trans women of color um, are facing intersecting oppressions. What do you think this particular case can teach us about uh, the discourses about and the violence against Mm -hmm. trans people of color and specifically uh, black trans women? Yeah, that's a, that's really a great um, question that I've been thinking about a lot too, especially in light of um, you know the developments over the last two to three weeks. Um, 
when I, you know, d- dove deep into CeCe McDonald's case um, by looking at news media coverage, also looking at the court transcripts and the court documents, um, I mean, what really struck me was that um, on the one hand, we had, you know, local news outlets, whether it was um, the newspapers or the channels um, that really um, fed into so many tropes and stereotypes of um, black people as being inherently violent, um, of black people not deserving um, empathy or victim status, um, of black people being inherently angry. Um, And so I really noticed how a lot of these historical stereotypes recircled in CeCe's case and are recircling in so many other cases, right, that we see right now um, that somehow render black people as not deserving of humanity and of living their lives. Um, And simultaneously, when I looked at the court documents and the transcripts, um, what I noticed from the state and the prosecution was also this sort of um, notion that somehow the legal system is colorblind. Um, It's allegedly colorblind, where we don't see race and we don't see gender, uh, we don't see ethnicity, But it became so clear in McDonald's case that um, ultimately this sort of mantra of colorblindness is just used to really cloak the inherent systemic racism that is so fundamental to our criminal justice system. Um, For example, um, Dean Schmitz, the the guy that CC um, killed, um, had a giant swastika tattoo printed on his chest. Um, But that swastika tattoo was not admissible in court, as the judge claimed, because it's not, quote unquote, proven that the swastika tattoo really means that he was a white supremacist. Um, So there are all these, you know, intricacies in the law that ultimately end up really protecting white people, um, while at the same time, they don't um, protect people of color, they don't grant people of color the same rights. Um, that we often grant right people. Um, And so for me, this case, again, this was back 2011, 2012, um, sadly, I think just really is, you know, one of many cases where we see similarities reoccurring um, over and over again. Um, Yeah. And when Cece was um, sentenced to two years in prison after she took um, a plea deal, Um, She was, for example, in the beginning, also put in a men's prison rather than a women's prison. Um, She had to continuously fight um, for her right to receive health care during her incarceration. Um, So her case also really speaks a lot um, to questions of the prison industrial complex. Um, The fact that, again, our criminal justice system disproportionately convicts black and brown people um, who also receive higher sentencing rates than white people. And so I think in many ways, really, um, her case really exemplifies a lot of the issues that we have been been brought back to the forefront just over the last few weeks. Exactly. So, yeah, as we speak, as we record this thing, the whole country and many other parts of the world as well are rising up, right, against systemic racism. Right and the police violence against uh, Black people. How is this, or is it, affecting Black trans lives? Do you think they're being included in this conversation? Mm-hmm. There was a big demonstration in New York, but in general, yeah. what do you think? 
Yeah, this is a, an excellent question. I talk about this, or I sort of, you know, dissect some of this too in the um, in the chapter on CC that specifically sort of looks at the activism that started to happen around her case. Um, and what I noticed too is that um, even you know at CC's time back in 2012, um, when Black Lives Matter was also really gaining a lot of ground and being in the mainstream media. Um, propelled by obviously, you know, the killings of Trayvon Martin, of Michael Brown, of Tamir Rice. Um, what I also noticed is that oftentimes um, Black Lives Matter really meant Black men matter, right? Um, and of course, that is because the media disproportionately sort of pays attention to the killings of Black men by police officers. But we don't often actually pay attention to the fact that there are as many Black women and Black trans women that are also the victims of state-sanctioned violence. Um, and so what I am, I think, hopeful of is that um, the sort of recent resurgence and attention to Black Lives Matter um, does pay more attention to the fact that there are also trans women, women, um, brown, Latinx folks that are also being um, targeted by this violence. And so I do think that um, compared to 2012, I think the current moment is, to me at least, seems to be paying more attention to some of the intersectional identities um, that are being targeted by um, state, state agents um, and state violence. Um, I, you mentioned this rally in Brooklyn. I thought that was really, um, I just saw some news media coverage of it a few days ago too. And I, I was really like um, Im impressed and, um, and, and proud to see so many folks turning out for black trans lives because again, oftentimes black trans women are sort of falling through the cracks when it comes to these larger movements. Um, and so I do think it is refreshing to see that there now is more attention um, and I do think that hopefully, um, with the momentum that we've seen over the last two weeks, that we might actually really be at a point um, where we are creating more systemic change um, rather than just talking about police reforms. Exactly. So I would like to shift gears a little bit and ask you about process, right? And uh, mm -hmm. you talk here about this process of questioning your positionality and your privilege. Mm -hmm. Would you mind talking about that? No, absolutely. Um, yes. Uh, so just, I, uh, I one, Just one comment. I was particularly interested in your discussion, and I'm going to quote you here, uh, about mm -hmm. the blurred line between scholarship and activism, as mm -hmm. well as the complex politics of allyship. Yeah, um, I, I talk about both of those in um, it's in the introduction of the book, and I kind of return to it a little bit in the conclusion. Um, and what uh, what I really had to grapple with, um, and I continue to grapple with in my ongoing work, is that um, I think we need to be as scholars and researchers uh, really careful about the ways in which we write about um, communities that we are not a part of. Um, so as you know, you can tell two of the case studies in my book are about black trans women. And it, it often, my book talks about trans communities of colors more broadly. Um, and obviously that is not a community that I am myself a part of. And so it really forced me, um, to be very, um, critical, self-critical and self-reflective, 
um, about my process um, and about, you know, also just checking my own privileges as a white academic who identifies as queer, um, but who has, um, you know, undoubtedly much more sort of power than many of my informants that are part of my book. Um, and so for me, that really has meant um, to actually read a lot of literature on feminist methodologies that I found really um, helpful in navigating some of these tensions and boundaries. Um, it has also really forced me to think about the ways in which, you know, the fact that I have now, I have published a book um, on, on the subject matter that has undoubtedly helped me to get um, a, a, like a tenure track position, right? Um, that has secured, given me a secure income, while someone like Cece McDonald, for example, still struggles very much um, for her basic everyday survival, that um, I need to reckon with those power differentials and those hierarchies. Um, and so for me, what, what has been really important is to think about the ways in which um, I'm accountable to someone like Cece. Um, to me, that means, for example, actually paying people for their work. Right. So if you interview someone, pay them for their time. Um, I've also tried um, several times and I continue to be um, inviting trans folks to come to campus for talks and screenings, um, for co-collaborations on articles. Um, and so I think there are just ways in which we as researchers can really be more accountable um, to the folks who are often really providing us with the stories um, and a wealth of information that we otherwise would not have. Um, and I think those are just some of the, you know, the small things that I feel at least um, everyone should do um, in terms of really trying to do their work ethically. Uh, and it also, of course, means that we're all going to mess up at one point or the other. Um, and I think, again, just also acknowledging that we're not perfect, we're going to make mistakes but um, how can we be really ethical and accountable to the folks that we write about, I think is, is really important. Um, and as I mentioned, it's for me also still an ongoing process that I'm, I'm trying to figure out uh, and navigate as I do this work. I see. One, uh, I found it really interesting is the uh, a concept that you bring by the, uh, mostly at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. Could you explain uh, the concept, the idea of nobodiness, and how could it be used as a tool of resistance? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm really glad that you're bringing this up. So the concept of nobodiness is actually something that Tourmaline, who's a, a Black trans woman, a filmmaker, and also really prominent activist, um, started using and articulating in a um, commencement speech that she gave uh, at Hampshire College a few years ago. And I was really struck by her um, definition theorizing of nobodiness. Um, so Tourmaline talks about nobodiness as basically being a sort of tactical, strategic navigation of spaces of visibility, invisibility, and hypervisibility. Um, and this concept is very much informed by her own experience as an activist and as a filmmaker who has recently gained some prominence and fame but whose work has also been um, very much exploited um, and abused without her really receiving credit for all the amazing things that she has done, for example, in terms of documenting and archiving the life of Marsha P. Johnson, um, who is one of uh, a revered trans elder who really was um, fundamental 
in the 1960s and 70s um, to fight for trans rights and acceptance. Um, and so Tourmaline really, I think, exemplifies or tries to um, articulate that we are, none of us are sort of in a space of impure politics. Uh, none of us are perfect. Um, sometimes we need to be visible to make our demands heard. Uh, we can think about the current Black Lives Matter protests, right, which are very much visible and in people's face. But as we know, again, sometimes that visibility also brings more harm um, to us. And so sometimes we also need to be invisible. We kind of need to be, you know, behind the stage working um, undercover um, to actually accomplish things. And so she talks about this nobodiness as the space of tactical navigation where we kind of subvert dominant systems um, of oppression. And so I think some maybe good examples of this abstract concepts we can think about right now is, um, I, at least in my city here in Denver, I've seen really um, such great mutual aid work popping up since the pandemic, but then also really spurred by these latest protests, where everyday folks, neighbors come together to form groups, um, to provide free meals to school kids, um, whether you're providing rides to your elderly neighbor, um, to the grocery store. Um, or you're forming, um, you know, a chain around a house of someone who might be um, subject to ICE deportation. So I, to me, nobodiness really infuses an understanding of mutual aid work um, that is happening all across the country right now that is not tied to big civil, civil rights organizations or, you know, a central leadership figure, but it's sort of the small actions, everyday actions that all of us can take um, to really undermine, um, to challenge and to resist a lot of the state violence that we currently see. Well, yes, uh, that it was a, a particular section that I enjoyed reading because, you know, we all need some sort of like message of hope or, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. So that, that, that was helpful <laughs> in my current state. Uh, yeah. I, I have recommended this book to a few folks already, and I would certainly uh, recommend it to our listeners. But I would like to conclude, uh, I like to conclude these interviews with some, a few questions, uh, if it's okay with you, about books and projects, right? Mm -hmm. This is a podcast for and by folks who like or write or, you know, work yeah. in books. Was there any particular book that informed or inspired uh, Terrorizing Gender? Oh, that is a great question. Um, I would say there was a whole bookshelf full of books <laughs> that um, have, have certainly really influenced um, my thinking and my writing as I approached um, this work. Um, I would say, you know, I was trained in media and communication studies, and I also have a minor um, in, in women and uh, gender studies. But I really, for example, uh, didn't know a whole lot about legal studies and critical legal studies. Um, so I really had to read up on a whole lot of stuff. And so I would say um, the work of folks like Kimberly Crenshaw, um, Michelle Alexander has really been influential in terms of helping me understand how our legal system actually works. Um, and again, with a particular eye towards um, the protection of whiteness um, in the law and how it is inscribed in the law. Um, on the other hand, for the sort of um, activist thinking that I think is also very much um, inscribed in this book, 
um, I was very much influenced by folks like um, Dean Spade, um, who is also a legal scholar and also a trans studies scholar and his book, Normal Life, which really, um, for me, was eye-opening in terms of how trans people are specifically sort of targeted um, and surveilled by the law in various aspects, um, whether it's just something like being able to change the gender marker on your um, driver's license, um, whether it is questions of um, housing access, etc. So Dean Spade, um, I would say a group of very radical queer activists and thinkers, um, commonly known as the Against Equality Collective, has been very influential in some of their shorter um, collections and pieces that they have published. Um, but there's also um, a lot of really foundational media studies work um, by folks like Herman Gray on uh, visibility politics um, that really have, have drastically shaped um, my thinking in this, in this book. Um, and so I, I really, um, you know, wrote this book to be in conversation with many folks um, and scholars that I admire um, from, from various fields. And I hope that um, by being in conversation um, we can also really just build more scholarship um, that critically looks at um, issues around trans representation and um, how we can improve the lives for trans communities. Well, this is not a question about books, but since I just watched it, I'm curious, did you have a chance to uh, watch the Netflix documentary, uh, Disclosure? I have not, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, I know. I had several people have already texted me. We're like, have you seen it yet? We got to talk. And so, no, unfortunately, I have not had a chance yet. Um, but yes, it is, it is high on my, uh, my to-do list. Um, okay. And I'm, I'm curious. But yeah, what are, are you, do you want to share briefly your impressions? Uh, I think it was a very, very necessary uh, film. Mm -hmm. uh, and right. uh, I just watched it last night and I'm still thinking about it. And yeah. as some, I went to film school, so uh, mm -hmm. that hit, uh, you know, I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's a <laughs> section where the, 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 they discussed D.W. Griffith that was like, I, we need uh, this yeah. in the world right now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, what are you working on now? What's your next project? That is also a great question. Um, so I have, I'm, I'm continuing to be really interested in this uh, sort of question of visibility um, and the, the pros and cons um, of visibility. And so in a more recent article that uh, I've been working on that um, has come out after the book, I've specifically turned towards art and artists um, to think about the ways in which they can challenge those narrow confines of visibility. Um, so for example, I've been working on a piece um, about Castles, who is a gender non-conforming performance artist um, who has done some really fantastic um, in-your-face artwork um, for and about trans people. Um, so one of their uh, more recent installations, for example, was collecting 300 gallons of urine and putting it in a big giant plexiglass cube um, with an art installation around it to call attention to the Trump administration's, um, you know, harassment um, and discrimination and targeting of trans communities. Um, so I'm, I'm turning to analyzing some performance art to also, again, think about the ways in which um, performance art can maybe help us to, again, broaden the confines of visibility and to challenge some of those narrow 
respectable images that we only get to see in mainstream media. Um, so that's been uh, one thing I've been working on. Uh, another bigger project that is kind of ongoing is, as I mentioned earlier, um, this notion of um, trans athletes in sports, I think, has gotten a lot of attention more recently. Um, Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education, for example, just sort of threatened Connecticut that they um, are not allowed to have trans athletes play in their collegiate leagues. Um, otherwise, they would pull funding, basically. Um, and so I'm kind of turning towards the arena of sports to also, again, think about um, who is included in sports and who is not included. Um, and why are particularly, again, trans women right now being very viciously targeted by various conservative groups um, to prevent them from actually participating in sports? Oh, I definitely want to read all of that. All of that. <laughs> <laughs> Mia, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it really was a pleasure. Um, I'd love chatting with you. And I know there, there would be so many more things to say. Um, but I very much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for the very thoughtful um, and provocative questions. This oh, was really a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the New, Bo New Books in Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Mia Fisher about her book, Terrorizing Gender, Transgender Visibility, and the Surveillance Practices of, US, of the U.S. Security State. It was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2019. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time. <laughs>